Welcome to the Surviving Society collaborative and ongoing series with Sage Publishing's Social Science for Social Justice book series. This series reflects Sage's mission-driven approach to publishing by platforming emerging voices and enabling the dissemination of bold thinking that will inform the work of future generations of scholars and changemakers. In these episodes, we talk to authors from the book series about their research embedded in visions for social justice for all. Hello, everyone. We are really excited today to be in the studio with Delana Spencer, who is the Senior Commissioning Editor at Sage Publishing um, and is also the founder of the Social Science for Social Justice book series that we are going to be covering over the foreseeable and surviving society. It's so great to have you in the studio, Delena. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Delena, just to give the listeners an introduction, how would you describe the Social Science of Social Justice book series? I would describe it as a series of books that is meant to bring a shared sense of social justice for all. Um, it's a series of books which is meant to move away from that traditional academic format Um, of writing and create something new which is accessible I think something that people will find about academic writing is that it's it's often speaking inwards it's academics speaking to each other and that you don't really see that trickle down so it's all about accessibility of language of ideas in order to reach a wider audience and get them interested in really urgent um, issues of social justice Um, it's also about bringing in authors who represent the full range of experts that we have. Um, We have this idea of an expert who is a white man that sits in an ivory tower and who learns through data and reads phenomena and they're not actually really engaged or on the ground with the work that they're doing. So it's really important for me to find um, authors who are working on the ground, who are engaged and who are working within and alongside communities. Um, So they might not always be academics who are within a university, they might be working for a charity organisation, they might be part of a social activist group. It's about really showing the breadth of what and who an expert is. Delena, you're so clear. Not that I didn't (laughs) think you would be, but because like, because we're often on this show talking to academics who I kind of have to tease out of them quite intensely, like what it is they're actually studying or how it relates to the wider world. And like that kind of explanation makes my job a lot easier, but also really tells the listeners about what organisations like SAGE are trying to do when it comes to moving academic scholarship outside of the university space. Yeah, I think something that's a bit different about SAGE is that so part of my job is commissioning textbooks for students. So all of the commissioning editors within the books department are trying to find people who can speak to students, who can write accessible text. So we're not often focusing on these really kind of high level academic academic, um, texts. We're focusing on something which is understandable, where there's not a lot of assumed knowledge, where key terms are being introduced to students. And I think that actually feeds into the series quite well and what we kind of want for the general audience that we want to bring in with the series. So I think coming from that maybe that more textbook um, perspective is actually really helpful when it comes to speaking to accessibility. That's brilliant. 
So, I mean, you've touched on this already, but what does it mean in practice for the series to support emerging voices in social justice scholarship? I think a lot of, I mean, as we know, people of colour have been hugely marginalised and excluded within an academic space. There were, and education more yeah, broadly. And yeah, and education more broadly. Um, they found themselves overwritten, erased or made hypervisible through negative stereotypes. And the series moves away from that. It's about allowing or not allowing people because I don't want to say that SAGE is allowing people to do something, but it's about ensuring people have their voices and can maintain their voices through their writing. So something that you're told not to do um, within academic writing is write from personal experience and write from the eye, which is mm. funny because when it comes to things like autoethnography, if you're a white person, you can go into mm. another community and speak about your experiences. So this kind of not speaking from an eye seems really focused on not allowing, I think, um, people of colour to speak to their own situations. And others from minoritized groups as well. So something that I've said um, to do in the series is to speak from the eye because I, you know, the eye is political, the eye is academic, the eye is part of research, you can't remove it. And I think speaking from personal experience is just so incredibly important. And especially when speaking about the impact certain things can have on you as a person. So for example, um, you know, if we're talking about Tarek Yunus's book, which is talking about Islamophobia within um, psychology, how can you not speak from your own experiences yeah. of that? Um, so I don't want, I don't want authors to remove themselves or have to feel like they must remove themselves um, from what they're writing. We've got such a beautiful episode of Tarek coming up. I'm so glad really you mentioned. Yeah, no, it's absolutely brilliant. And that kind of the emphasis on subjectivity. Yeah. So our experiences and how it informs our scholarship, our activism, our community work, but our writing seems so central to this series. Absolutely. And especially, you know, if we're getting activists to write for the series, you know, often people are activists because they've been impacted they felt something and they want to fight against that and they want to ensure that other people like them don't experience that negativity so um we've signed um bcn so the british east and southeast asian network to write a book which is about um british east and southeast asian identity and advocacy and that journey that they've taken within the diaspora and how they've gotten from point A to point B as a wider community. Um, so, you know, you can't ask them to remove the eye. Mm. It's just so integral. And I think that's just, it's just such a big part of the series that I really want to maintain. And it's another way that I feel the series pushes against those prescribed academic structures. Um, I think what I'd like the series to do is really bring down that kind of tower and show that there are other ways of writing, of speaking, which are legitimate. And I think having a publisher like Sage be behind that does help to some extent. Um, I think, you know, people will look to academic publishers for legitimacy. And I think it does add that to some extent. So I'm happy that we can work within Sage to do this. Um, Amazing. So in your experience so far, Delena, with working with authors, but also being engaged in this kind of work, 
How does academic scholarship create impact beyond the academy and academic publishing? Academic research is what, well, should be informing policy, we hope. Um, So it does have a wider impact. It informs policy. I think, you know, it's what you would use within an activist space. Like you need the stats and the data. So Mm. you've got that kind of qualitative side um, and especially that qualitative side that you can bring yourself. But you need the research, you need the data, you need it you know, academic work is needed to articulate things that we feel, to give name to them and to allow us to kind of break down barriers as well. So I feel it does have a wider impact. I think the issue is, is that it just doesn't trickle down. Yeah. So, you know, we publish a lot of journals at Sage who are reading those journals, who's reading that research. It stays within academia and that's where it essentially sits so I think what I worry about is that we have all this work all this really valuable stuff but it just doesn't go outside of that and there are academics who try to get their work out there in other ways so you know you're doing this Mm. and people will start blogs people start zines there are creative ways that the work is getting out there and I think that's hugely valuable and I think that academic publishers should be looking at that and when I think about accessibility as well, you know, academic texts aren't often accessible, whether that's about, you know, the way it's written or the price point. Academic texts are very expensive. Mm. And that's because, you know, we don't publish as much as them, as much text as, say, a trade publisher would. So they're priced, they're priced quite highly. And I think something that's quite nice about the series is that we've been able to bring that down. So, um, it's a lot more affordable for people. And I think that financially accessibility is important. It's such a political point um, that Sage has made with making this book so accessible in terms of cost. Because as you say, like academic resources are basically hidden from communities. They're hidden. Like it's not yeah. accessible. It's so expensive. Like there's paywalls for things. And yeah, to make these books an affordable price, I think is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I would love it if they could be free. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're covering the chapters if we get sample chapters. Yeah. Yeah. You get a sample chapter which is um posted on the website. So yeah. you can see that. Episode notes, you'll yeah. see that. Um but yeah, I mean, I yeah, I wish they were free, but there is also, you know, working on the publisher side, I know that there is so much that goes into a book as well. You know, there is the labour of colleagues internally and, you know, who are working to make these beautiful and making sure that the authors are looked after and supported and the work is the best that it could be. So, yeah, there's a lot that goes into them. Definitely. And how does the current terrain of publishing lend itself to developing new voices and ideas in anti-racist education. Okay, I think there's a huge opportunity that academic publishers could take to diversify the work that they're producing. I think it's just about making that leap. Um, it's it's hard. I think you're having to balance the kind of commercial side with really important work which can contribute towards social justice. And, you know, both of those sides are important to think about. Um, 
I know that publishers, academic publishers, are thinking a lot about diversity. They are thinking about decolonization. Mm. They are thinking about how to widen the voices that they have. But there are just so many other things that are going on. It's a really hard one. And I think that in this current moment, it is an opportunity, as you say, mm. for publishers, whether it's academic publishers or trade publishers, to really capture this moment where there is a lot of consciousness raising. There's a lot of people that want to know about theory and practice that's written about within our academic books. And actually, like the people that haven't necessarily always been at the forefront of that are the people that you're looking to centre within this social justice um, series. So I think that, yeah, it's moving in the right direction. But I think, I guess our kind of hesitation in this conversation is there's a lot of work to do yeah there's a lot of work to do a lot of people like ourselves have not been given the space to be at the forefront of leading knowledge but I'm very optimistic that that is changing and you are seeing organizations like Sage and like other publishers really moving into that direction of like centering the people who are quote-unquote understudy and having those voices the ones that are the authority Absolutely. And, you know, publishers are made up of a lot of people and many of us, you know, want to do good work. We want to see more voices, more people, the people that we haven't been able to see before and we want to centre them. And there's also, you know, there are people who are coming up in publishing who are from minoritised backgrounds, yeah. who haven't seen themselves reflected yeah. and who want to. I think something that I found going up within academia and then moving over to academic publishing is that I just wasn't seeing myself and where I was it was hugely negative and I didn't want to perpetuate that harm. I think a lot of people especially within an academic space have been reading things which can harm them. They've been reading stereotypes, they've been reading assumptions, they've been reading bias and that's something that I think we as publishers have a social responsibility to do what we can to move away from. Mm. And if it's not, you know, I think one of the ways we can do that is finding the right people to speak on particular subject matters. But we can also help to educate our authors as well. So and kind of, I guess, lead them to the water. So when I'm speaking to many of my authors, I'm already having conversations about diversity, equity and inclusion. I'm asking them to change certain things to make sure that there is, you know, good representation for the people reading their books. I'm trying to tell them that their audience is so diverse and so wide and they want to bring, you know, if we're talking about textbooks, bring students with them, not exclude them. So I think we do as publishers have a social responsibility to change the way that we've worked. But there's a lot of work to be done there. There's a lot of there are a lot of things that we have to do internally as organizations in order to make the work that we're kind of putting out there more reflective of the society that we're in. Thank you so much, Delena. Meredith, what does it mean in practice? for this series to support emerging voices in social justice scholarship? I think it means first leveraging the name of SAGE and its recognition um, and using power in that regard to amplify voices that otherwise may have a more difficult time um, 
being able to put the work out into academia and beyond and go beyond those borders. And that's really important because academia is so insular and so used to its own conventions that it's difficult for people who either don't come from these spaces or want to speak to people outside of these spaces or do work with people outside of these spaces, it's difficult for us to really be able to move through the world with the same kind of support that is necessary for those ideas to be disseminated the way that they should be. And so I, I take that very seriously as a responsibility um, as one of the editors with this series, because it means using our time, using our expertise, um, using the connections that we have in the industry and in academia and, and just throughout the world to make sure that those voices get heard. Otherwise, there are lots of great ideas. Um, there's lots of innovative thinking that doesn't get disseminated the way that it should. And it's another way that those voices get silenced. So we're working to really open up um, the channels for that scholarship to flow. I really like what you said there, Meredith, in terms of like a recognition of the power of an academic publisher like Sage, but kind of leveraging that as a way to kind of mitigate like power imbalances within or, or play their part, power imbalances within academic scholarship. So I love that you kind of made that connection there because like we all know that academic publishing in general has a long history of marginalising voices and it does take that kind of intentional move from institutions and organisations with power to truly redress some of these things that we're thinking about today. How does academic scholarship create impact beyond the academy? Well, around the world, people look to the academy um, to find experts. It is something that we've all been trained to do. The people who are supposed to be experts are the ones who have spent time studying and not necessarily living it. We don't give lived experience the same kind of um valor or the same sort of attention that we often give to academics. That creates this power imbalance where we are looking to one source to tell us what is true, what is right, what ideas are worth thinking about, and what have you. Academic scholarship, when it is cited in news media, when it is used by groups that are lobbying, when it is used by people who are trying to make sense of the world around them, has this influence in that people rely on the information that they get from the scholarship to make decisions, to argue their points, and to persuade others. And so we see these influences in everything from news media coverage, uh, really even to the arguments and the conversations we have with our loved ones. You know, there are definitely things that we go to and say, you know, you do this and here's the explanation for it. I read it in this book. And I think every time we think about something that we have read or we've heard quoted, we can begin to trace uh, what seems to be, but is not really, the invisible influence that the Academy has. Thank you so much. That's such an amazing answer, Meredith. And just sort of as a side 
side note to that, like, where do you see the role of the intellectual and the academic in this moment? Like you mentioned kind of within our personal and professional lives, but it so often feels like we're often kind of questioned around a combination of authenticity and rigor, particularly when it comes to social justice scholarship. Well, anti-intellectualism is nothing new. And in many cases, it's a precursor to fascism. Um, when in history we look back and we see where the attacks began, they don't just begin with people who are on the margins. They also begin with those folks who have the privilege of being able to study and to research and to present findings in a way that offers um honestly, data and information and perspective that is difficult to refute. And so the anti-intellectual climate can be linked directly to an an attempt really to delegitimize arguments that are in favor of social justice or movements that are working for social justice. And so I think it's really important that academics recognize that threat and take it seriously and apply their work um, in oppositional force. And Meredith, how does the current terrain of publishing lend itself to developing new voices and ideas in anti-racist education? Well, I think more than before, we have the opportunity um, to look at the, the current range of voices that are available via social media, via digital media, and to amplify those voices in ways that our social justice for mothers, for fathers, for folks um, could only really dream of. Mm-hmm. You know, the conversations that they had in kitchen salons and with one another in these intimate moments, we are seeing play out on digital and social media channels in public spaces in very, very accessible ways. And we now have the ability not only to identify those emerging voices um, and amplify those emerging voices, but also to use our power to make sure that people are paid for their ideas, to make sure that they have the ability to make a living if that is what they choose to do off of the intellectual labor that they are taking up in the spaces that they inhabit. It is a thrilling time um, and one that we are challenged not to replicate the past where we've exploited intellectual creativity and capital uh, just because we can see it and it's easily accessible. Meredith, thank you so much. What a beautiful answer. Like, I've never heard someone kind of say in that way, like comparing like the digital space, the salon or to the like the community space or among conversations amongst friends, like these conversations are now able to happen in a public domain. And there is obviously we all talk, we talk a lot about the perils of digital media and social media, but actually it's really important for us to like grasp on to like the beauty of it as well. And thank you so much for giving that to us today. Thank you for having me. Professor Jason Arday in the building. Bashment horns, please. <laughs> George, please. All right. Oh, sorry. That, oh, that's right. good, though. Uh, that's, uh, good. That's, good. <laughs> that's good. What does it mean in practice for the series to support emerging voices in social justice scholarship? Well, first and foremost, thank you so much, Um Chantel, Jessica, for having me here. Um, I call Chantel 
um, CJ because her name is Chantel Jessica. So um, I'm going to go with CJ for the purpose of this conversation. Um, what does it mean for for scholarship? It's it's huge, Chantel. Um, I think one of the things that's kind of really prevalent is that there's a kind of growing collective in terms of young black academics um, and ethnic minority scholars who have been underrepresented, um, often misunderstood in terms of publishing, in terms of publishing, generally speaking, there's been a, a hyper surveillance and a and and really um, a policing of thought around what they think, what they want to write about, how they convey lived experience through very uh, restrictive um, normative uh, binaries um, that often are situated in, in, in whiteness if we're being honest and we're going to have a, a grown-up conversation about this. So I think the idea that this kind of pushes those boundaries I think is really important and it's giving people, you know, one of the most important things I think anyone can have which is this sense of agency and ability to um, express yourself in the truest sense of the word um, and in a very autonomous, um, cathartic and empowering way and an emancipatory way as well. That's such a brilliant and beautiful answer, Jason, as always. I think that one of the things that you've talked about there is, yeah, that importance of agency, that importance of lived experience and really taking seriously how like marginalisation, yes, it is such a difficult thing to navigate within education and institutions more broadly, but actually it means we have a unique, I'm going to use one of your words, unique vista into understanding society. And that's why it's just so incredible that Sage are supporting this in, an, in a meaningful way. Yeah, Sage Sage are supporting it in a meaningful way. And I've often said this, and um, I, I mean it when I say it, I, I've been... I've been very fortunate to have met the most remarkable black women in in my just over a decade in academia. Um, you know, CJ, uh, you know, I'll often say you're, you're probably the best person I've met in academia. Um, and but someone that's a, a very close second to that, you know, is, is Delana Spencer. And I often credit her single handedly with um ensuring that this doesn't become another generation of lost academics in terms of black and ethnic minority people not getting the opportunity to tell their stories. Yeah. Um, I think what Delena has done over the last six, seven years in terms of um, developing mechanisms and interventions for black academics across the career um, lifeline, early career, mid-career, you know, very senior, is that she's kind of given this platform for them to talk about their experiences, legitimise those experiences and has used the substantive resource that SAGE have in, in addition to her own ingenuity um, and brilliance to really drive and motivate this thing. And she's really been at the vanguard of of that change and the the, the C-section of change we've, we've observed in the last five years in terms of publishing I genuinely would single-handedly put it down to one Delana Spencer. Come on, Delana Spencer, <laughs> also on this episode as well. But yeah, you're so brilliant at giving black women, especially their flowers, Jason. Um, so on that note, how does academic scholarship create impact beyond the academy? Oh, CJ, that's a brilliant question. Do you know what? It's kind of... Um it's kind of the impossible dream. It's it's one of the things that I've always been I've been so gravitated towards your scholarship because 
you're one of the few people I've observed who's managed to do that, you know, to, to take um, academia, to make it accessible, to find ways to make it more inclusive, more engaging. I think one of the biggest things is how we kind of accessibility. Yeah. Um, I, I think we can engage in this kind of linguistic olympics where we just make things completely inaccessible i think we need to understand there are different modes of learning different modes of engagement different modes of knowledge exchange and consumption and i guess one of the things that's kind of been amazing about a conduit like surviving society is that it's managed to hold court in terms of being front-facing and kind of illuminating um academia and what happens in academia but it's also struggled that idea of real life. And so I often talk about praxis, you know, and this idea, we theorise about ideas, but what does it mean practically speaking? And it's one, it's something, that's, it's a it's a euphemism that's located in the classroom space. But if we kind of think about, you know, the classroom of life, how do we take these ideas from these kind of archaic, problematic ivory towers and put them in the real world and make them um, tangible you know something people can actually touch and i think for me something like surviving society has done that well it's done exceptionally well and what it's become is it's been the stimulus for other people to be more exploratory in the ways in which they engage in public sociology and other public discourses and other public academic disciplines you know which can range from stem to sociology to psychology to education to life sciences i think that's important because what it's given us is is a new way of thinking and over the last five years though there may be some people who are coming up through the kind of pipeline now who this will be the norm for them and that's great but what they won't realize is that before the intervention of surviving society that wasn't and actually that intervention ended up being the catalyst for a lot of different thinking about the ways we can engage in publishing and knowledge dissemination and that's a very key thing and i think you know smartly um sage caught the zeitgeist of that and i wouldn't say jumped on the bandwagon but they knew where to hitch their ride and and yeah. they and they and for me they hitched it um on the uh correct wagon jason you have such a way of like circling back <laughs> it's there's no one there's no public sociologist that's able to do that in the way that you do i think it's it's incredible so i'm like oh my god speaking up silent sight this is amazing this is amazing sage yeah no sage definitely <laughs> sage is in there as well thank you so much for that and finally how does the current terrain of publishing lend itself to developing new voices and ideas in anti-racist education oh. and this is the knowing that the terrain is it's it's not all positive it's not all hopeful it's, it's tricky at times like we know like we're up against some really difficult forces so I guess it's sort of us thinking now about like what can what can academic publishing do in this moment I think it's difficult um I think historically there was a policing of anti-racist work and there was a monopoly on it and that monopoly was at least when I came into academia you had a lot of white scholars, which is absolutely no problem with doing, but they were basically representing the plight that black and ethnic minority people were experiencing. Now, this was okay to a point, but in terms of co-constructors of knowledge and who actually benefits from holding that narrative, very often what I noticed, and a lot of scholars and colleagues of mine noticed of colour, was that black and ethnic minority people weren't actually being given the opportunity 
to tell those stories themselves. When they started doing that, what emerged was a policing and a trivialization yeah. of the research that they do as not being empirical, as not being rigorous, um, as being theoretically flawed. Yeah. Um, when this research was being done by white scholars, and this research is helpful by white scholars, but just to make a comparison, that that wasn't happening. Mm. In fact, there wasn't even a questioning that black people and ethnic minority people weren't actually involved in the knowledge construction part of the process. In fact, parts of it were probably quite um, exploitative. Yeah. Um, and as a sector, there's a responsibility in us and all of us to reflect on that and to look on that and how we change things. Now, we've been presented with an amazing opportunity to really think about how we centre the voices of black people in academia and give them the autonomy and the emancipation to talk about their lived experiences without it being policed or surveilled or trivialised. Now, I don't know if we've taken that opportunity as well as we could have done. What I do believe is that um, black and ethnic minority people, so they say that power is rarely given, it's taken. And I think what black and ethnic minority people have done exceptionally well is taken that power in a, in a publishing sense and they have centred their own voices and they've used with their ingenuity a range or a plethora of mechanisms to um, centre and ensure that that voice is heard. For example, something like Surviving Society gives a whole different type of platform to be able to centre that voice, which historically did not happen. And as a result of that, our voices don't remain on the periphery anymore. But that isn't because there was this massive sea change. It's actually because black and ethnic minority people have done what they've always done, which is to reclaim power in some respects that is taken. And what we have now is we have that. We have that. We have black and ethnic minority people being unapologetic about talking about their lived experiences. I still believe there is a membership and within this membership, there is a subscription to who is allowed to talk about their experiences. And I still believe that black women are not given the same autonomy to talk about their experiences and the same space isn't created to centre those narratives and to deal with some of the challenging problems that we as a society inflict upon black women and women of colour more genuinely, but very, very specifically black women um, because there is a normalisation of victimising black women that is problematic and seldom as a society do we do enough to disrupt that. So for me, it's really, really important that we... We continue to have these conversations. We continue to find ways to take power in terms of publishing. This is why you cannot overstate the importance of a Delana yeah. Spencer. This is why you cannot overstate the importance of a Dr. Chantal Jessica Lewis, because what they're doing in these spaces is really, really changing the game. And this shifting of sands would be glacial not for their intervention and you know the great thing about those two particular uh, black women that i'm talking about is that they, they they have driven that they have driven that in some ways they've they really pushed it and actually challenged us to all think about how we think about these things so i think it's really important i think we're making moves you know um as i always say or as my my, my dad always says to me tiny drops make a mighty ocean um i would love the pioneers to reap the benefits of their soil so all the black women and black people and ethnic minority people that have invested in this endeavor i really hope that during the 
trajectory of their careers, they they benefit from this as well. Because I think all too often, you know, there's a lot of black uh, people and I think minority people and black women in particular who lay these foundations and they often don't, they don't get their flowers. And, and I really hope that the seeds that they plant come to bloom and they, and they see that rise. So I think that's hugely important for me. And it speaks to the fact we've got a lot of work to do to ensure that we keep centering black voices. We ensure that we as black and ethnic minority people do everything we can to not remain on the periphery. Part of that is in our jurisdiction. A huge part of it isn't, but you've got to keep knocking on the door. You've got to keep asking the question and keep having those conversations. Professor Jason Arday, what an incredible answer. Thank you so much. Oh, CJ, honestly, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.